Well, good morning. It's good to be able to speak to you this way. I'm looking forward very much to that moment when we'll be able to see each other face to face and be able to share God's word together and rejoice in what God has for us. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you might open our minds to understand your word, that you might open our hearts to believe it and to cherish it. Father, please direct our wills to respond to your word as you desire. We pray, Father, now that uh, you might take all distractions from us and enable us to hear your voice. And this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of those things that is important to know if you are preparing for Christian ministry, no matter what the context, no matter where or when or among whom, is what is really going on when someone refuses to believe. For no matter where or when or among whom, you will encounter people who simply refuse to believe. Sometimes that refusal will be polite. I hear what you say, but I just don't believe it. It might even be apologetic. I wish I could believe what you believe, but I'm sorry, I just can't. And sometimes it will be aggressive, demanding you provide the kind of evidence they prescribe, attacking you as deluded or weak-minded or worse. It's easy to be knocked off balance when it comes at you like that, even when it's polite or apologetic. And if you're not going to topple over yourself, you need to know what is going on, what's really going on when someone refuses to believe. For ultimately, when the veneer is peeled back from the cabinet and the doors are opened, unbelief is irrational. I hope you understand that. Determined unbelief is irrational. I know that's not how it's presented by those who've embraced it or by our community at large. Unbelief is often set up as more honest, more real, more truly reasonable than faith. It's the courageous way to live. And in contrast, it's faith that is presented as irrational, a refusal to accept the blunt and brutal truth about the world and ourselves, an abandonment to fantasy and nonsense. But I repeat, it is determined unbelief that is irrational. And Jesus himself pointed that out time and again. This morning, as uh, we turn to Matthew 12, we discover one of those times and it deeply illuminates the human condition. It might shine a light on your own life, how it was, or perhaps even how it still is bubbling under the surface. But it most certainly will reveal the truth of what is happening, what is the real condition of so many around us. Well, to understand what's going on at this point in Matthew 12, you need to look back and see what's happened immediately prior to this exchange between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. It was perhaps the same day that the catalyst was put in place. Back in verse 22, they, whoever they are, had brought to Jesus a man possessed by a demon, a demon that had made that man both blind and deaf. And you might remember, though it's been a little while since we were looking at that verse, that this act of compassion and glorious power by Jesus, and boiled down to just two words in the original, he healed him, provoked a scandalous question from the crowd standing around. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the king that we've been waiting for, the deliverer who was promised long ago? Could this be the one 
who realizes God's heavenly purpose on earth? And that was a question that just could not be left unanswered. The first reaction of the religious establishment of, of, of those with the reputation for religious seriousness was to provide an alternative explanation. In response to the crowds, the Pharisee said in verse 24, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Their alternative explanation was to say that it was all done with smoke and mirrors. He's actually in league with the demons, or at least with the ruler of the demons. This is not good confronting evil. This is evil performing a charade. Don't be fooled. And do you remember how Jesus answers that suggestion? Given what you've just seen, this would mean the kingdom of demons is divided against itself. Satan, the great accuser, is undermining the work of Satan. What the demon had been doing in this man's life has been undone. Satan has attacked his own work. And don't forget, some of your own relatives have been casting out demons. Are they in league with Satan too? Don't play games. What you are saying is very serious. You are calling the work of the Holy Spirit the work of the devil, and that is not something that can ever be overlooked. So you, you look at the fruit. Look at the result. What kind of tree a tree is is shown by its fruit. So look at this. Freedom, release, peace and order, seeing again and hearing again. It's obvious this is not the work of the Prince of Demons, but something very different. Don't play games. Every idle word will be repaid on the day of judgment. It was a devastating response to a wicked suggestion. And the first strategy of Jesus' opponents lies in tatters. For something remarkable had been done. A man's life had been brought out of darkness and silence and that can't be passed off as just a parlor trick by the prince of demons. But the pure ones and the scholars, well, they're not done yet. They've got a fallback plan, a second strategy. And that's where today's passage comes in, starting at verse 38. So let me read it to you. Then some of the Pharisees, uh, scribes and Pharisees answered him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In response, Jesus said to them, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature three days and three nights, so also the son of man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment against this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but behold, more than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise in the judgment against this generation and condemn it because she came from the end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, more than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out from a person, it passes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to my home from where I came and coming to it, it finds it empty, swept and set in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they come and settle there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be also with this evil generation. 
Now, these words of Jesus begin and end with the same assessment. Did you notice? The, this wicked and adulterous generation, this evil generation. Because what is being asked here is nothing innocent. This is not a genuine inquirer asking for evidence in order to believe. You might come across people like this too in your ministry, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is rather a true and frightening indication of what is really going on in this generation. Evil, defection from the covenant of God, spiritual adultery, and it was all focused in this demand of Jesus. So the scribes and Pharisees need to learn again about the delusion of their unbelief. That's verses 39 to 42. And also the danger of their unbelief. That's verses 43 to 45. So first, the delusion of their unbelief. What the scribes and Pharisees ask is breathtaking in its arrogance, isn't it? It's actually perverse. They'd just been given a sign, the healing of the blind and deaf man, but that was not enough for them. It was not good enough, not decisive enough. Anyone could do that sort of thing. And no doubt some of them had seen, and if not, they'd most certainly heard about, the signs Jesus had done earlier, which are recorded in Matthew 8 and 9, the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the calming of the storm, the, the healing of the Gerardine demoniac, the healing of the paralytic, the raising of Jairus's daughter, the relief given to the woman with the hemorrhage. I mean, how much more do they need? But it's something many of us are very familiar with, isn't it? Those who obstinately refuse to believe will always come up with another reason not to believe, another condition that needs to be met before they will believe. They want to set the agenda and demand their own criteria be met. And Jesus said, it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. And no sign will be given to it. No sign that is except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Well, in passing, it's these verses alongside the reference to him in 1 Kings 14, 25, that make it clear to me at any rate, that we must not treat the Jonah story as a parable or a piece of theological imagination, but rather must insist that Jonah, the son of Amittai, was a real historical person and his ministry to Nineveh was a real piece of history, real people and real events. The Jesus who knows all things, uh, the beginning, uh, the end and the middle, did not make the mistake of placing an imaginary story alongside his own mission in order to make a point. He always spoke the truth and always made it clear when he was speaking with parables. And if, as on this occasion, he draws a link between two historical events, one in the past and one in the near future, the mission of Jonah, uh, the son of Amittai, and his own life and mission, then he made that knowing they were indeed two historical events. Just as, he says, the link does not work. The analogy does not work if one of these is not genuinely historical. But don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Well, the only sign this generation will be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah the prophet who bore God's judgment in the water 
and was raised up three days later to complete the mission he'd been given. Jonah the prophet, who preached repentance and who saw firsthand one of the most remarkable responses to such preaching in human history. There are uh, two lessons that Jesus wanted the Pharisees and scribes to learn by this reference to Jonah. The first had to do with his remarkable time in the deep, in the belly of the sea creature. For you see, when Jonah was thrown into the water, the sea grew calm and the storm stopped. It must have seemed as if God's justice had been done and that episode was now over. But three days later, Jonah was vomited up and he set out to do what he had sought to avoid at all costs, to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. In a little while, perhaps only a few months ahead, certainly just a few chapters ahead in this gospel, the Pharisees would think they had enacted the judgment of God. A man thrown not into the deep this time, but handed over to the Gentiles so they could sentence him to death. But when that happens, they will need to remember Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature for three days and three nights, but that was not the end. The message he'd been given would not be smothered by the waves, but would sound in the streets of Nineveh. Just so Jesus would be in the belly, in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and that would not be the end. His message would not be silenced by a rock tomb, but would be taken to the ends of the earth. You want a sign? Well, that's the sign. What Jonah anticipated, Jesus would fulfill. But you and I know that uh, even when that sign was at last given, those who had asked the question that day would not repent and they would not believe. The irrational, self-destructive nature of unbelief, an evil and adulterous generation. Well, the second lesson Jesus wanted the Pharisees to learn was to do with the preaching of Jonah and the impact it had. It was extraordinary what happened in Nineveh. Jonah's preaching was powerful, and it's just eight words as it's presented in the Old Testament. The sign of Jonah himself was so powerful, and the impact of his message was astonishing. The men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, from the most wealthy to the poorest, from the most powerful to those without power, from the king right through to the peasant. And that's why on the great day of judgment, they will stand up and condemn the generation characterized by unbelief and a stubborn refusal to repent. Because it took just those eight words of Jonah to make such a difference. And something more than Jonah is here. They didn't have Jesus and they still repented. But you, but we have Jesus. What happened in Jonah's day was extraordinary, but it was nothing compared to the coming of Jesus. And just to reinforce the point, Jesus points to another Old Testament story, another historical event, another occasion when the response of an outsider, a Gentile, highlights the failure of this wicked and adulterous generation. The Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, traveled an unimaginable distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. From the end of the earth, is how Jesus puts it. She knew this was something out of the ordinary, something well worth noticing, something well worth being confronted by. It was extraordinary what happened in the time of Solomon. 
wisdom unparalleled in the centuries of human history. And yet it was nothing compared to what was happening right in front of the eyes of these scribes and Pharisees. And so she, just like the inhabitants of Nineveh, will rise up in the judgment and will condemn this generation for its stubborn refusal to believe. It's as if Jesus was saying to them, you just do not know, do you, what you're dealing with here? You think it's ordinary. You think you can explain it away. You could think you can demand it prove itself. And you are deluded into thinking your refusal to believe is entirely justified. Yet there is a reckoning coming, a day of judgment, and it's not going to go the way you think it will. The Gentile Ninevites and the Gentile Queen of the South will look at you with horror and ask, how could you be so blind? How could you be so deluded? How could you possibly ignore Jesus? And friends, uh, when you in your ministry come across determined unbelief, it's just the same. In the light of all that Jesus has done, and we know much more than those scribes and Pharisees knew at that moment, it doesn't make sense. It is irrational, it's deluded. And there will be a day when that is obvious to everyone. Well, that's the delusion of their unbelief. Second, the danger of their unbelief. At this point, Jesus moves from a lesson from history, Jonah and the Queen of Sheba, to present a more general truth that points beyond delusion to outright danger. This uh, wicked and adulterous generation had seen demons expelled like the demon that had made that man blind and deaf, which was the real catalyst for this conversation. The coming of Jesus was a challenge to the disorder of Satan. The strong man had been bound, as Jesus said earlier in this chapter. That's what they witnessed. And yet those who had witnessed these things refused to make that connection. They tried for alternative explanations. And then they asked for more definite, more irrefutable evidence. But Jesus tells them, that is not just deluded, that's dangerous. For when the strong man has been bound, the demon has come out and everything has been put in order, then the house is ready for a new occupant. The wickedness of that particular part of Satan's scheme had been undone, but unless this man and those who faced Jesus that day with all their credentials and reputation for religious purity and deep knowledge, unless they turned to Jesus in faith, the way was left open for something even more horrible. Possession, part two. Wickedness, part two. And it would be far worse than the situation from which they had been delivered. If this wicked and adulterous generation did not see the sign it had already been given, and did not respond to the coming uh, by coming to the sign giver in repentance and faith. Not only will the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba condemn them in the day of judgment, but they will open themselves to the most abysmal abuse by Satan and those who serve him. For you see, determined unbelief is not just deluded, indeed delusional, it's dangerous. It's to play into the hands of the evil one who seeks to destroy life, to tear down order, to sully what's been tidied and cleansed, 
to settle in and steer the life of every human being towards catastrophe. Those who advertise their credentials as unbelievers in Jesus' time in pretended defense of the Jewish nation and the covenant of Israel, in our own time in defense of their right to self-determination, to shape their own lives and their own world without recourse to anyone, let alone God. Those who advertise their credentials as unbelievers are in incredible danger. If they only knew the true horror of what they were so joyfully embracing, would they still run headlong into the arms of the evil one? I fear for those who stand up and mock God, who despise Jesus or ignore him, those who equate the work of God's spirit with the work of the devil. There is so much bravado, that's the delusion. And there's so much self-confidence and self-reliance, that's the danger. Well, friends, these are hard words of Jesus. They are directed in the first instance towards those who saw what he had come to do and despised it. They would not come to him. They were deliberate and determined in their unbelief. Jesus speaks of what they have not realized about him, more than Jonah, more than Solomon. How foolish they'd been. If only they'd read their own scriptures, they should have known. With all that they had seen Jesus do and say, how could they possibly reject him? But Jesus speaks also of where this decision leads. A bondage to Satan and his intentions far more intense than anything they had experienced. Their final state will be far worse than their first. Yet these words are recorded in scripture so that we too might know just what is really going on when people refuse to believe. So that we might not be wrong footed by it, might not be shaken ourselves by the reaction of others. In the end, it is delusion and a headlong plunge into unimaginable danger. And it ought to arouse in us compassion for those who are so deluded and those facing such real and terrifying danger. It ought to drive us to prayer that God might yet rescue them. Don't be dismayed when you see determined unbelief. Watching people on the edge of a precipice is truly terrifying. But it was a reality in the first century in that evil and adulterous generation, just as it is a reality today. Be warned yourself. Don't, don't even begin to edge down that road and fall to prayer for those you see are there already. For determined unbelief is irrational. And whatever the veneer applied to it to make it look respectable, that's the truth. It is deluded and dangerous. And wherever your ministry will be, you need to understand this.